Well, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8. We'll continue to use Proverbs chapter 8, verse 32 through 36 as that text of scripture that rightly sets forth what this series is about. And so let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us and then we'll read the text and then we'll begin opening up God's will as it relates to the ninth commandment. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we come to your most holy, precious word, the word that is light and life. It gives us hope, direction. It strengthens our faith, Lord. It, it fosters a saving trust in you. Lord, as we listen to your word, as we continue this study of this abomination of abortion as it is in your sight, Lord, instruct us, teach us, Lord, help us to master the use of your word that we might be salt and light as we go out into this community. Lord, as we uh, address this topic, but even others, Lord, help us use the scriptures as a sharp scalpel, Lord, to do battle with error and the kingdom of darkness. Lord, we pray and ask your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of this word that it might be honoring to you, that it might glorify your name and it would edify all who listen to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, beloved, in verse 32, I wanna begin reading in Proverbs 8. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate me love death. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, we continue to enforce the rule, the law that God's creation is subject to him, whether the creation likes it or not. It is a harmful thing. It's a destructive thing for God's creatures to rise up against him, to go against him, to abandon him and, and walk away from him. It leads to injury. It leads to uh, death of the individual. It leads to death in any home. It leads to death to any church and even to any nation. It is not safe to abandon the Lord. It is not a good thing to walk away from the Lord. Now, what does it mean to walk away from the Lord? It means to walk away from his will, to walk away from his word, where he has declared himself, where he has made himself known, where he has revealed his, who he is and how who he is is to relate to us in, in pointing out, showing us who we are and how we are to live before him as first our creator. Now, as Christians, we are doubly obligated to take note of this. We're obligated just being made, being created in God as the creator. All men owe God that honor, love, and respect due to their creation and he being the only creator. But for Christians, there's a double obligation laid upon them because not only is, are they made by him, but they are remade by him in Christ. For we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are remade by faith in Christ. He comes and puts his spirit in every Christian's heart. He rewrites that law, the will of God upon their, upon their souls, upon their hearts, upon their being, upon their 
person so that every Christian has that commonality about them. Every true Christian has a genuine desire to please their God and Savior and to walk before him. Of course, none of us do it perfectly, but we strive to do it perfectly. We, why? Because we love him. We love him. As the text says, we must listen to our heavenly father. We must heed his instructions if we are to be wise and in order for us to live that true, vibrant life that he has ordained for us to live in the truth. Brothers and sisters, the sermon this morning, as as it relates to the abortion industry and the ninth commandment, the ninth commandment is, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You can find it in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. What is the essence of this commandment? Well, the essence of this commandment is the love of truth, to be lovers of truth. Lovers of truth in a way that we treasure it We see it as something that's precious. We value it to the extent that we promote it. We defend it. But what is truth? What is truth? If you were asked that question, how would you answer it? Now I'm going to answer it. For you, but I want you to think about it. It's not an easy thing. It's just not something you can pop off an answer to without some thought and some consideration. But what is this truth that we are to value and and treasure and promote and defend? I think one of the best and simplest definitions that I have found, and one that I think is useful for us this morning comes from Dr. R.C. Sproul. I think I got this from him. I'm not sure, but I'm going to give him credit for it. Dr. Sproul said that truth is reality. Truth is reality. And we're going to open that up a little bit. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, simply put, that truth as reality defines what is, what things are, what things should be. It certainly pre, uh, it is certainly to set forth an objective standards that things ought to be judged by. If you're going to have truth, then that means other things have to be judged by that truth in order for us to discard it or judge it as something that ought to be valued and defended. Objective truth is something that the deconstructionist philosophers have been at war with for a long time now in academia. Colleges for decades now have uh, uh, sort of attacked this objective understanding in literature and, and other studies because they wanted to deconstruct the way we think. Now, why is this commandment directly broken by the abortion industry? And that's the question, isn't it? That's, that's what I plan to prove over the next several minutes is the, the abortion industry rests upon a, a whole foundation of lies. Lies. And we're going to look at some of those particular lies as we move into the sermon itself. 
a fifth century philosopher, and I won't try to pronounce his name, I would just butcher it, but he stated this, he made this comment, he said, in war, truth is the first casualty. In war, truth is the first casualty. Now, what did he mean by this? Well, let me read you my thoughts. It says, this phrase means that during times of war, the truth is often the first thing sacrificed or lost. It means that in conflict, the truth is often distorted or suppressed in order to serve the interest of those in power. It suggests propaganda, censorship, misinformation are common in warfare. And it's difficult to get an accurate understanding of exactly what's happening. Think about this war in Ukraine and how it's unlike any other things that we've experienced in a generation or two. Now, brothers and sisters, I think we all understand that we are, too, in a serious time of cultural warfare, aren't we? The whole Western world is under attack. And why the Western world? We, we, we don't find this, this critical race theory and all of its brothers and sisters taking, you know, wreaking havoc in Middle Eastern countries, do we? You don't find that. Why the Western world? Well, make no mistake about it. It's because this war that we find ourselves in, this cultural war, is a war of religion. It's a war against Christianity, the Christianity that built the Western world, its institutions, It's philosophy of brotherhood, humanity. Uh, The things that we love and the things that we benefit from are all stem and flow out of Christian thought. That doesn't mean everybody's a Christian. Hospitals are a prime example of Christian philosophy to be a help, to be, to be there in times of need for people. And that's why churches were very instrumental, denominations were very instrumental in what? Establishing hospitals, orphanages, homes for the destitute. These were church activities largely governed at some point in time in its origination, even by the diaconate, the deacons. That's why you could find hospitals in Atlanta and places all over the country here, the, the Baptist Hospital, the Presbyterian Hospital, the, the Episcopal Medical Center, all of these things. Why? Because these were, these were how these hospitals began. I don't have time to go into the whole uh, science discussion about how many, if not most of all of these scientists that come up with these tremendous inventions and discoveries were Christians. Why? Because they believed that God had given gifts to men throughout creation and they were discoverable. And there were laws and there were rules. And if they were obeyed these laws and rules, they could discover wonderful things. And they did. The essence of this commandment, beloved, teaches us that we have a duty to one another, to ourselves primarily. What? To speak the truth. Even about ourselves. Well, we hardly, don't, we hardly don't think like that, but I've used this many times in counseling. Let's start with telling the truth to ourselves, who we are, how we handle things. But the truth as it relates in those three institutions that we looked at in the fifth commandment, the family, the church, and the civil magistrate, 
that there's a duty to value and defend and promote the truth. Now, when we get into the larger catechism that addresses the ninth commandment and those sins that are forbidden in the ninth commandment, I just simply want to go through and give you a breakdown of some of the things we ought to avoid just to show you the broadness of the meaning and the use of the commandment itself. It's not just speaking toward one thing that is not to lie, but there are all kinds of circumstances where lies are promoted. Lies are promoted in all kinds of ways, and we need to be aware of this. And abortion does this. Again, it's built, the whole abortion industry is built on a foundation of lies. But I want to get through this before we get into that so you can see how biblical, how to use the Bible. You can sort of grasp the biblical philosophy and then be educated yourselves to go and wage war against the kingdom of darkness, particularly those who would promote this heinous act of abortion. If you break out this catechism question, first of all, it's this idea of of when, when the truth, this is, this is what the scriptures teach. Let me give them to you. You can write them down. And this is speaking to the importance of the ninth commandment. You thought the other commandments were important, and they all are for sure. But I think this morning you're going to leave here and you're going to go, I didn't realize just how important a ninth commandment is. I didn't realize how important it is to tell the truth. Sometimes I thought it was optional. I think you'll change your mind after this morning's sermon. The first thing in speaking to the importance of the ninth commandment is when there is no truth, when truth is assaulted, when, when truth is covered up or seen as a lie, calling good evil and evil good, when a culture turns its back on the truth and adopts the lie as the truth, it destabilizes and demoralizes the whole nation. It it destabilizes a nation. It fractures the very foundation of a nation. When you think about honesty, when you think about integrity, when you think about love, when you think about how we are to interact with one another, when you think about the justice system, I mean, when you think about education, without truth, the whole nation suffers. It's destabilized and demoralized. Look in your Bibles to Habakkuk. We're not going to turn. I'm going to read most of these scriptures, but I want you to see this one for yourselves. Habakkuk, Nahum Habakkuk. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Now, Habakkuk was a prophet, and he was a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah. This, uh, he was prophesying just before the Babylonian captivity. Uh, God had revealed to him what they were going to suffer. And look at, well, verse two, let me read the text. It says, how long, O Lord, will I cry for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife uh, exists and contention arises. Look at verse four. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. And the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Now, what Habakkuk is telling us that in his time, as he has stated in these verses two and three, what he's telling us is the whole nation has been destabilized. 
The whole nation is demoralized. They are, they, 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 they get up like you do. They turn on the radio or the TV or open their smart devices and they, the first thing they're inundated with is what happened last night? What town was burned up? What riot happened? What foolishness are, are uh, these officials in power have enacted and we feel demoralized because it's evil. Righteousness exalts a nation, doesn't it? But wickedness tears it down. Now, don't, for, don't forget that principle. To abandon the truth is to destabilize a person, a family, a church, a nation. It, de, it, it demoralizes it. They go on to talk about the polluting of the court system. And, and this is what the commandment typically addresses. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. It's a commandment that is strengthened in the negative. Don't do it. Tell the truth. Be someone who, who tells the truth when it comes time for you to speak, even on behalf of a neighbor. Whether you like the neighbor or not, tell the truth. This commandment is against polluting the court's system in the pursuit of justice, the, even the courts of public opinion, right? Things that come out, things that are biased, things that are half-truths and incomplete to, to what? To promote this, this agenda. And if we're not sharp and if we're not on our toes and we're not being critical thinkers, we just gobble it all down and it begins to sway the way we think about certain things and we have to be careful of it because propaganda is very powerful. Lies are powerful. Deceit is powerful. These are influences. These are influences. Deception is a powerful influence. It speaks against, the, uh, against giving false evidence in a situation. I know that many of us have felt betrayed in the past, but I want you to think about the Lord Jesus Christ. At his trial, what did they bring forth? Witnesses. Witnesses. To witness against Jesus. How did they witness against Jesus? Well, they lied. But how did they lie? They overfaced the truth. Yeah, they used statements he used that he's going to tear this temple down. And re he did say those things, but not in that context. They outfaced what he said. And with a terrible motive to what? Condemn him. So they produced these witnesses to testify against him. The passing of a, you know, when you think about this, this whole thing about um, polluting the court systems and whatnot, and I'm gonna, I, I thought about it, but it's just like those that have been arrested for the January 6th thing, who have been sitting in jail for two years without an indictment. That's unjust. Either indict them and try them or let them go. That's an abuse of power. And it doesn't matter. My point is, I'm not saying it because they're, quote, conservatives. I don't care. It's not just. It's not just to treat anybody like that, anyone like that. So I'm not speaking one way or another. I'm just addressing the abuses the passing of an unjust sentence. I just read this week of a college student in the University of Tennessee uh, that went out like many college students and drank way too much and began shouting racial slurs. And she was arrested. She faces 13 years in prison. How is that just? To take someone's life 
13 years of their life. It reminds me of the times of England during the times of Spurgeon and there were, England had a, a, a orphan problem. There were children just running the streets. I mean, it's sad. And they had, they had no way of taking care of themselves. And they, they were beggars. And they would run up to anybody of substance and beg for anything. And, and it became it was so commonplace that, you know, the upper class, the middle, you know, they complained. I'm like, can somebody get these rats off the street? I mean, it was really, but, but who, who rose to the occasion? Christians. Christians did. What did Christians do? They tried to feed them. They tried to house them. They tried to provide places for them to sleep at night so they didn't have to sleep out into the weather. Go and read uh, George Mueller's biography and how th- there's these testimonies where he would have as many kids as he could fit into his house and they would have no food and he would just gather these precious little children in his company and say, now let's pray and let's ask God to give us what we need. And in the midst of prayer, there would be a bump at the door and he would check the door and there would be food out there on the steps. That happened many times. One child I remember particularly in reading, and I think Spurgeon actually even addressed this in one of his sermons, the injustice. This child stole, he stole a loaf of bread from a bakery and they sentenced him to 10 years in prison. Does that sound just to you? Does that not incite you? I want, to write, I want to put my hands on the judge. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically. But isn't there a righteous anger that swells up in you? To, even Proverbs says you don't treat someone who's who steals to pacify their hunger the same way a person who steals to just to pacify their lust. There's a difference. If you get hungry enough, what's your, temp- what's your temptation? To try to find something to eat. That's injustice. This commandment speaks against it. It also speaks against the rewarding of the wicked according to the work of righteousness and righteousness according to the works of the wicked. Isaiah 5, verse 23, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the one who are just. Is that not taking place in our day? The commandment breaks down into the third part, which is the responsibility that we owe one another. That is, That is, these would define what acts of hatred look like, concealing the truth. If you have the opportunity to tell the truth and to possibly free someone and you don't do it because you don't like them, you just displayed hatred for that person. And that is sinful. To conceal the truth, undo silence in a just cause. You think about the stoning of Stephen is one of the proof texts used here. Holding our peace when iniquity calls for reproof. Let that one sink in. Malicious are, are, are being malicious to a wrong motive or end, perverting the truth. Equivocating the truth. Of course, outright lying, slandering, backbiting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, being rash in judgment without hearing all the facts. It also speaks against deception. 
this fourth breakdown is the manipulation or distortion of reality. That's what deception is. It's a distortion of it. It's an inordinate love for self and a hatred toward our neighbors. How? By misconstructing their words, their intentions, their actions. Flattery is a form of this. Why? Why is flattery deceptive? Because the person using it toward a wrong end doesn't mean what they're saying. It's usury. And this is the heart of the abortion industry. They don't care about women's health. It's about the money. It's about the dollar. There's billions of dollars being made in the murdering of unborn children. It's not about women. It's not about women's rights. It's not about a woman's health care. These are lies. They're being manipulated. It's deceptive. It's flattery. Thinking or speaking too highly or even too meanly of ourselves. Not recognizing what God has gifted you with and doing something with it is a breaking of this commandment. Certainly overestimating our gifts, but certainly underestimating our gifts is a problem, isn't it? It's deceptive. It's, you're, you, there's more capability here than we're acknowledging and recognizing and, and not using. I'll just cover these last few and we'll get into the major lies of the abortion industry. Aggravating of small faults, Matthew 5, 1 through 5. Hiding, hiding, excusing of sin. Unnecessary discover of infirmities. Looking for problems when there aren't any. Just to prove yourself right or better than others. And of course, the raising of false rumors, evil suspicions, envying one another, contempt, neglect of a good report. If there is legitimate good report about somebody refusing to even accept it, it's sinful. Now, brothers and sisters, all of that and much more, I've only skimmed the surface this commandment addresses. And I think you can see and understand now why the breaking of this commandment destabilizes and demoralizes anyone it touches. And now you can see how the propaganda machine works because it wants to misinform. It wants to deceive. It wants to create fear where there is no fear. Listen to, there's an article after I had put together this lesson, I wanted to just search the internet and just address some of those larger lies that, um, that are propagated by the abortion industry. And it's interesting that I came across an exact article dealing with what I was preaching on, written by a Christian, Okay. And I want to give him credit for, for, what, for these seven lies that he promotes. His name is Wallace Smith, and he wrote this article, and he deals with seven lies of the abortion industry, and then he speaks against each one of these. Now, there are more, and we can deal with that at the end, but I thought I would use this because he deals with all of the big ones. The first one. Elective abortion must be unrestricted because of rape or incest. Now, that's a big one. That's a big one. That's taking place in the debate, I believe, in our own Georgia legislature. Now, what's the truth? The truth is more than 98% of abortions come after consensual sex. And all extinguishing of a human life. So 98% use it for a form of birth control. That's the fact. That's the 
That's the example. He says this, in, in this case, the lie comes from the form of a red herring. Rape and incest are tragedies indeed, but the abortion industry often weaponizes these tragedies as if they justified abortion on demand for any reason. In reality, statistics show that these incidents are rare. In the United States, for example, the state of Florida, that's where this survey was done. November of 2018 reported that out of, that of the 70,239 Florida abortions performed that year, just 109 were due to rape or incest. So out of the 70,109, that's 0.15%. By comparison, 95% of the state's abortions were for social or economic purposes and not medical at all that is taken from the young ladies that had gotten the abortion this is their statement that they are getting an abortion for social or economic reasons not medical ones I hope you can see that I've heard this myself, and in fact, I had a conversation just this past week. The Lord has opened up the doors for me to talk to uh, some uh, folks that are not pro-abortion, but they're not necessarily anti-abortion. They don't know. They don't know where they stand. And so it was um, an education for me to talk to them and to find out why, you know, why they were sort of neutral in this matter and why they shouldn't be neutral. And, and these are the things I'm learning. These are college students. And, and these are the things they hear in college regularly as if this is the only case. Now, I would say this about the rape and the incest. Instead of using abortion as the mechanism to address it, why don't we deal with the predator? Why don't we deal with the perpetrator? Why don't we deal with the crime itself? Let's start there. Because if it's that, it, it, I mean, again, if it's 0.15%, we could probably get that down a whole lot more by addressing the crime itself. Line number two, restricting abortion means abandoning women in life-threatening situations caused by dangerous pregnancies. Line number two, restricting abortion means abandoning women in life-threatening situations caused by dangerous pregnancies. So what's the truth? The truth, and he cites journal articles, and I recommend you to go to the and look it up, but he cites journal articles. I'm not going to go through there and cite all those for the sake of the sermon. I'm just hitting the main point. What's the truth? The truth is abortions to save a mother's life are rare and already, uh, and all, and, and already well accommodated by law and medical science. Equating all abortions with circumstances in which doctors are literally seeking to save a mother's life when pregnancy goes tragically wrong is a common tactic, a common misleading tactic that ignores the facts. Fewer than 10 nations, and he lists the nations, are the only nations in the whole world that will not allow an abortion to save a mother's life. Most nations' legal systems recognize that treatment to save a mother's life is not morally equivalent to killing an unwanted child, which we know that. They allow the treatment of ectopic pregnancies, the 1% to 2% of pregnancies in which a fertilized leg is implanted somewhere other than the uterus, often in the fallopian tube, which gives current medical technology, generally results in the death of both mother and child unless doctors intervene or God provides a miracle. And he goes on, he says, parents facing such a tragic situation deserves compassion and support. They do not deserve to be made a distraction from the issue of elective abortion where the mother's life is no, in no danger at all. Considering that the same Florida statistics cited earlier note that only 0.3% of the abortions in that state that year out of the 70,000 were due to life-threatening conditions. Now, this is a common this is a common lie. I hear it often. 
And being that one, my youngest daughter is in college, these are the things that she hears. And you're talking about that 0.3% and acting as if it's what? The majority. And it's not. What they don't want us to realize and what they don't want to acknowledge is that 98% of abortions are due as a, used as a form of birth control. That's what they don't want to talk about. That's what they don't want to discuss. And that's what these lies all deceive. Uh, they uh, misconstrue the information. They want to divert us from actually addressing that topic itself. So lie number three. And this is, this is one that just it rips at your heart. But the fetus has, hasn't developed uh, enough to feel pain. And that's one that I've actually heard in a debate. Well, they don't feel anything. Is that true? The truth, fetal responses suggest of, suggestive of pain have been found as early as 12 weeks after conception. Now, that's being found as early. That's not to say that it's not even earlier right? All they're saying is we can go all the way back to 12 weeks. We know they feel pain at 12 weeks, but, but that's all we know at this point. And then he goes on to cite medical journal after medical journal after medical journal of new research that is astounded at the feeling and development of that little baby. God continues to prove himself wonderful, doesn't he? He continues to demonstrate what we as Christians have known all along, and that's what? Life begins at conception. And that child is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, even at that stage of life. And he goes on to cite several journal articles and neuroscientists to that effect. And you can go and read that for yourself. But that is a lie. Because that's the way, listen, that's how they, that's how they were able to manipulate many of these young women into getting abortions. You know what one of the number one questions a young woman asks before the abortion? Will my baby feel pain? Will my baby feel this? There's a conflict going on in that young person's mind. There's a, con there's a moral conflict happening in the heart and mind of this woman that's listening to this medical expert tell them, oh no, your baby won't feel a thing. In fact, it's really not even a baby. It's a fetus. You know what they find out that with that young person realizes that that baby does feel pain, guess what happens? They don't want an abortion. You know, one of the things I thought about, and I'm going to praise God, and we can praise God here today about it, is this. The pro-death cult has spent billions and billions and billions of dollars trying to convince us abortion is good. And you know it's still a conflict? And let that sink in. Now, we want it abolished. Amen. But they've spent billions, if not trillions of dollars, and there's still this moral conflict. Where does it come from? From man being made in the image of God, and they still have to wrestle with natural law, and they still have to wrestle with their conscience, and they know it's wrong. And the fourth lie, if you are anti-abortion, you are anti-woman. If you are anti-abortion, you are anti-woman. 
What's the truth? Women across the political spectrum, from radical atheists, feminists, to conservative religious traditionalists, agree that a truly pro-woman stance must include a stance against abortion on demand. That even, I mean, again, you don't have to be a Christian to know it's murder. We, sh- we know because we have an extra Right? We have, it's not just our conscience, it's not just that natural law. What? We have the revealed word of God telling us that life begins at conception. But the world knows that abortion is wrong and it's murder and it ought to be pro woman is to stand against abortion. This debate, he goes on, the, Mr. Smith goes on, he says, the debate about abortion is often framed as a men versus women issue as part of the larger hypothetical war on women. That is, that, that's the propaganda. There's a war on women's rights. There's a war on women's reproductive system. The reproductive system's working fine. It's not a war on a reproductive system. Would you relabel it? It's a war on the baby, It's not the reproductive system, it's working. But it's a war on the unborn child. It's a war on life, consequences. And they want to frame this as these men, and I I used this in a sermon, several sermons back, because again, this is, if you listen to these modern podcasts, and, and I do, I don't know why I torture myself, but I do, and I, and I listen, and it goes, you know, we don't want these, these old, crusty men, he's talking about the Supreme Court. We don't want these old, crusty men uh, making uh, uh, decisions for our reproductive system. That, that, that's not a valid argument at all but they talk about it all the time again it's deception it's misinformation it's propaganda it's the way you destabilize a, a, a people the, these young women it's, 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 and it's working you know here's listen to this in 2018 the Pew Research Center which is a credible uh, research center published results that uh, made this falsehood abundantly clear. Here's the quote. Organizations that advocate for legal abortion often frame it as a woman's right issue. But in many European countries and the United States, women do not differ significantly from men in their views about abortion. According to a new analysis of Pew Research Center survey data, 34 European nations and the United States that Europe, uh, uh, women are about as likely as men to favor legal abortion. In December 14, 2018, that's when the survey was done, this trend has not changed significantly in the last few years. But let me ask you this. So what, so what does the research prove? The research proves that men and women are about on the same page. In Europe, and the United States. But what does Europe and the United States have in common? They are traditionally Christian nations. They are nations that have been influenced by the worldview of Christianity. And it's interesting that there's still this census, this consensus, right? That, that men and women agree. It's either right, you know, or wrong. That's about equal. And I think we credit the past, the preaching of the gospel, the, the, the preaching of the Ten Commandments, the preaching of ethics and morals traditionally has had its permeating effect upon families and homes. And these have been the discussions around the breakfast table, whether they're at church or not. Of course, we want them to be in church. We want them to believe in Christ, but still, nevertheless, That's part of that that foundation of what I was talking about. They've spent all this money and it really hasn't changed much. The The politicization 
of abortion is so strong that some pro-life women's groups have been barred from joining the popular women's march in Washington, D.C. Why? Because, well, they don't agree with them, right? Um, In fact, this last women's march in 2021, they did not want the pro-life feminists marching with them and polluting their ranks. So they renamed their women's march to rally for abortion justice. Now, brothers and sisters, why is this culture so bent on death? They can't even fellowship with their own sisters, their own common gender, because they are in disagreement of murdering their children. Remember I said that abortion is a sacrament of this cult of death. This is a religious movement, and it's a fact. And in fact, you can find signs online, abortion is a religious right. In fact, that's the argument that the church of Satan is using to fight the abortion law in Texas. Abortion is our religious right. Now let that sink in. Listen to this. The question of abortion transcends gender politics and posturing. It's not a woman's right issue at all. It is significant for every member of society. In fact, many who claim to be concerned about erasing women are more than happy to wield the eraser themselves when women disagree with them. End quote. That's Mr. Smith. The point is, it's not about the women's rights at all. It's not about the woman's health. It's not health care. It's not about any of that. It's about abortion on full demand and that's why you have these many of these democratic states that want abortion even up to 10 days after birth i don't know if you remember the governor of virginia not the current governor of virginia but the one that the the one that lost his last election he was promoting that a parent should have the right to kill their child up to 10 days after birth whether to decide whether or not they wanted it or not. See, there's no end, is there? There's no end. Line number five. The word killing does not even make sense in discussing abortion. They're not really killing anything. The truth. Abortionists know that a desensitized people will be more easily will more easily accept the procedure but abortion undeniably but abortion undeniably kills a human being that is it's more manipulation of the young lady and to tell her that it's not it's not a baby it's just a thing The baby's dehumanized. This deceptive language tries to hide the fact that an abortion ends a life. And even though those facts reveal that it does just that, I mean, there's a a book he quotes. I haven't read the book. He just quotes portions of the book in the article. But basically, this, this is the testimony of an abortionist, one who was very instrumental in passing much of the pro-abortion legislation that we have in this country. Well, he, he got converted to the pro-life movement. Now, I didn't say converted to Christ. I don't know. But he converted to the pro-life movement once he realized he was wrong. And he realized that it does terminate a baby's life. And then he became, that abortionist, that ex-abortionist, became a pro-life advocate until his dying days, until the day he died. He began to try to reverse much of that legislation that he promoted, quote, by fake science. In fact, he goes on in the book and states that they, they deceptively gave misleading numbers to Congress. They inflated all the numbers to make it look like if they didn't act and make abortion, uh, you know, uh, law uh, illegal, that that just people were going to be women were going to be dying in the streets. 
And he said they purposely were deceptive and inflated those numbers. He said when those numbers weren't even close to the truth. Sounds like a confession, doesn't it? You know, the thing about the beauty about the Lord and the science that's continuing to be brought forth, they can't hide it anymore, can they? We know it's a baby. We, we, we see the pictures, don't we? We see, we see this living little person. And I forgot the percentages of, a, of a, a woman that goes in to have an abortion, and when she can see the baby on the ultrasound, she changes her mind. Praise God. See, she's been told that it's nothing, that it's not a person. And then you see that the face and the hands and the feet, her instincts kick in. I have another survey coming up that I think you will find very helpful. But listen to this next one because it, it, it builds on number five. Number six, tens of thousands of women will die each year due to dangerous back alley procedures if abortions are restricted. That's a lie. The truth is botched legal abortions are a bigger problem. Botched legal, you heard, botched legal abortions are a bigger problem than alleged illegal abortions ever were. What they found out is when they restricted abortion, when it was less common and less available, birth control methods were used. I found this staggering. In 2007, out of the, um, the survey done on abortions that year, 66,000 women died because of the legal procedure of abortion. So not only did it kill the baby, it killed the mother in 66,000 of those cases. He goes on, he talks about uh, the misleading the public. He says, we aroused enough. Now, this is the abortion doctor. This is the one that changed his view. This is the confessions of an ex-abortionist. He wrote this. He said, we aroused enough sympathy to sell our program of permissive abortion by fabricating the number of illegal abortions done annually in the United States. The actual figure was approaching 100,000, but the figure we gave the media repeatedly was 1 million. Repeating the big lie enough, often enough, convinces the public, he says. The number of women dying from illegal abortions was around 200 to 250. Not 1,000, 200 to 250. The figure we constantly fed the media was 10,000. What number did I just give you that died uh, recently, I think 2007, 2008, of legal abortions? 66,000. When he said the real number was less than 300. Number seven, without abortion, many women would live lives of bitterness, regret, despair, and broken dreams. I've heard this one more than any of the others. The truth, over time, the vast majority of women denied abortions for whatever reason, don't regret it. I'm gonna go to this statistic, and then I'm going to add some of my own thoughts as I've been doing all along the way. But listen to this. One week after abortion denial, that is seeking an abortion but being denied an abortion, 65% of the participants reported still wishing they could have had the abortion after the birth, 65%. Okay, only 12% of women reported that they still wished that they could have had an abortion. 12% uh, uh, of women reported 
that they still wished that they could have had the abortion. At the same time, the child's first birthday, it drops to 7% still wish they could have had an abortion. And by the time the child is five years old, it drops to less than 4%. What does that tell us? That as that child grows in their presence, they become more endearing to the child and realize the fulfillment of their lives. And I'm going to say this, and, and there is a large, listen, you young women are being assaulted and lied to, manipulated and deceived. You are being told that life is about making a living Chasing your financial dreams, being independent, free, uh, uh, just a free woman, able to do whatever you want, when you want to do it, and all these things. And listen, you can go online. There are TikToks. There are YouTube videos. There are websites. There are forums that you can go on to. And what do you see these women in their 40s and their 50s doing? Crying. Why are they crying? Because they're all alone. And many, I mean thousands upon thousands of these people will tell you, I bought the lie of feminism and it destroyed my life. I made work my God. And you know what you find out about these jobs? They don't care. These employers don't care about you. You get pregnant, we'll pay for you to have an abortion because you, you make us money sitting at this desk. It's not about sympathy. It's not about help. It's not about protecting your freedoms. It's about making them money. It's cheaper on the employer employer to give you the money for an abortion than to pay for you to be six weeks, 12 weeks out of maternity leave. It's economics. It has nothing to do with loving women. It's about the dollar. And these women's, the lives of these women have been destroyed because you know what they were? You know what they found? They're empty. And what they find out is that relationship with a man is, hey, as hard as men can be. And some of us are really hard to get along with. That companionship, that intimacy, that, that, that friendship matters. Those children matter. And yet, these lies have destroyed so many of these young women. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this question. To, we're at the end. And I came across this in my study of Jeremiah taking me into Exodus and whatnot. Abortion isn't a judgment on this land. It's judgment. The Lord has withdrawn himself and in doing so, we've become calloused, we've become hardened, we've become insensitive to human life, even the most precious and weak of human life. It's a judgment on the whole Western world, isn't it? We had it better at one time. The gospel reigned and ruled. Christ was exalted. We walked by the light of God's law. We loved him, we loved one another, and now we are championing this idea of abortion on demand even after birth in some cases. But you know what I got to thinking about? I thought, you know, God uses means, and I'm going to give you a simple, silly illustration. You're going to laugh at it, and I'm going to make my point. You all have probably heard the joke, and you know I'm not one to tell many jokes. But you've probably all heard the joke about the man whose house was flooded and he gets up on the roof and a boat comes by and he says, hey, get in the boat and I'll save you. He goes, no, no, God's going to save me. Boat goes on, helicopter comes. I mean, you know the story, right? You know what happens. He drowns and he gets to heaven and he's like, Lord, why didn't you save me? He goes, well, I sent a boat. You know, I sent a helicopter. I mean, I, I sent what means to save you, but you wouldn't heed those means. Now, I'm going to ask you this. We keep talking about things need to change. We need leaders. 
We need people to rise up. We need statesmen. We need people to rise up and champion these righteous causes. Have they been aborted? Has Joshua been aborted? Has our Joshua been aborted? Has Moses been aborted? You see, it's judgment. The very Savior God sends into cultures and societies, the means, God uses means. Have they been aborted? And we're still clamoring for help. Save me. No, God's going to do it. How do we know God hasn't done it? Now, brothers and sisters, that's a staggering thought. But all throughout the Bible, God uses people to lead these revivals and revolutions, if you will, moral revolutions. How do we know that that person hasn't been aborted and God just continues to patiently deal with us? Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity to put our minds to these holy things, Lord, to this moral dilemma, not a dilemma, this moral issue. Lord, we're not at all uh, in a dilemma. We know what's right. We, we choose the path of, what, of, of light over death. Help us, O oh Lord, to understand the, the war of propaganda, the war of lies and deception that is plaguing our, our young people, particularly our young ladies. And we ask, oh God, that you fortify their minds with the truth. Lord, let this sermon just be a small part of that. Let it be at the beginning of it. Lord, that it would shield their heart and their mind from, Lord, even considering these things and make them, Lord, these young women especially, great lights for the truth and for life itself. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.